Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a regular slice of unfamiliar, often long forgotten or unreal sound in true crime that I research and bring to you from my crime room in my corner of North Wales. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the hairy football, the world's smallest cat, calling what you want as long as it's a pleasant thing. Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is here as ever. He's curled up fast asleep by my feet. And completing us are yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show go around and are now putting it into year seven. What a ride and a pleasure it's been to do that too. It is as fabulous as ever you joining me in the peaks today. I thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. The last one of the regular show for 2023 comes here then, though not the last of the series. And because it's Christmas, which I don't normally do on the regular show, I bring you a tale of a truly horrific and senseless crime that took place at Christmas back in 2008, which I shall get onto shortly. I usually do save such tales of holiday horror for Patreon at this time of year. And this year's no exception, Horrors of the Holidays 4 will be coming before the end of the year for subscribers. On the subject of Patreon, catching up here with shoutouts for new friends Tina, Lee Sullivan, Ashley Dominique, Emma Doyle, Ain Sweeney, Carol, Michelle Royal, David East, Jennifer Riff, Jilly, Kim Norton, Douglas Golightly, Hanny Stone, Crystal, Susie Newsome, Gina, Stacy Philpot, Morwenna Moss, Paul Patterson, Sabrina Olson, Whitney, Rebecca Jackson, my Mr. Yoshi Edgley, great name there, Rachel Averick, Melanie Wilson, Elizabeth, DC Bo Buff, and Joanne McKenzie, plus Sherry Todd, Lydia Pappas, Penny Foster, Emma Ridout, Kayla Elizabeth Cook, Rochelle Iredale, Annie Lynch, Caroline B., Celia Miller and Mr. M. L. Dunstan, Esquire, who have each opted to annually support the show. And apologies both if I've mispronounced anybody's name there, and also for the lateness of shouting you out, folks. I know I haven't done this for a bit. Thank you so much for your kind support. It really does mean the world that you do. And I hope that each of you have gotten well stuck into the plethora of bonus tales that being a supporter gets you. Now, like these aforementioned legends, if you fancy a bit of extra enthusiast in your life, then it's so simple to do, even Diane Abbott could do it no problem. Well, I think so anyway. And it costs the best part of bugger all to do. Just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast out on there. It's got the same show logo and everything, but just always remember that podcast suffix to find it. Or you don't even need to do that really because there's a link in each episode show notes alongside the show's contact and follow details that will take you right there. And quick as a flash, you can be hearing such bonus tales as Status or The Slowly Turning Wheels of Justice, Murder Under Cover of War or the latest episode that's out, Predator on Plenty of Fish, to name just a few of the series plus unreleased full-length tales that there is. And there's a right mixed bag in there, there really is. Patreon, I always say, is often my playground to try something a bit different. The bonus tale coming each month. Back to the regular show then. And when this episode is, Christmas time, for many, it's a time of reflection. It's a happy time for many people, a chance to catch up with family and friends, take a few days off work and overindulge in eating, having a few drinks, enjoying the merriment and seeing the joy and excitement of children waiting for an opening presents. Equally though, for many it can be possibly the darkest time of the year. They may have nobody to share Christmas with, or, as I said, it may be that time of year where you reflect on people who can't be there with you that you've lost. Personally for me, for various reasons, it certainly isn't my favourite time of the year at all. The Willan family from County Kilkenny in Ireland are one such family that Christmas, try however hard they may feel to otherwise, is forever ruined for them now. 
as it has been for the past 15 years. Instead of three extra places set at the family table for Christmas dinner, and three extra lots of presents to be shared, today, the family has three candles that they light annually, a remembrance to the three family members who are no longer with them. They're no longer with them because their lives were taken early one Christmas morning some 15 years ago in the most horrific and senseless of crimes that there is, a desperately sad tale that I shall bring to you right now, which largely in part will be from the recollections and words of family members, in particular, John Willan. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of a sexual nature and involving children, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode I've entitled Horror on a Christmas Morning. We head over to the rural village of Wine Gap in County Kilkenny in Ireland, where the matriarch and patriarch of the Whelan family, Nancy and Christopher, or Christy Whelan as he's known, still live today now both being in their 80s. Very family-oriented, coming from large families themselves, Nancy and Christy had a large family. They sadly lost a daughter, Jacqueline, just shy of her first birthday. But twin boys Paul and John followed not long after. But as the boys aged, both Nancy and Christy longed for a larger family, Nancy particularly wanting the daughter that she'd never really had chance to. And by 1982, the couple had adopted a three-year-old girl, Sharon. Sharon's brother David was also adopted with her, and some months later, her younger sister Linda as well, making the Willan family complete, a happy, wholesome and stable family unit. Her elder brother, John Willan, recalled. Sharon was three and David was four when they come to us. A few months later, Linda came to us. I think that indicates how big a heart my parents have. They couldn't split up that family because the three of them were natural brother and sisters and they didn't have the heart to break them up. Overnight, we went from a family of two, myself and Paul, to a family of five. Looking back on it now, we were all the better for it. As far as I was concerned, she was my sister from day one. She and I were very tight. We'd lose the rag with each other, then forget about it and throw the arms around each other. When she was 18 and legally able to do so, Sharon even changed her surname to Willan. John recalled precious Friday nights where he'd meet up with his little sister to play darts in the local pub and described a bubbly and vibrant person with lots of friends, a people person who wanted to work in hospitality because she so loved helping people. But most of all, Sharon wanted to be a mum herself. John continued. All Sharon wanted to be was a mum, and a good mum. That's all she talked about. When Zara came into the world, that was her world. There was a six-year gap between the two girls. Sharon had indeed had two girls when she was in her twenties, daughters Zara and Nadia and the girls instantly became her life. The two girls were from separate relationships, neither of which lasted, but in spite of the hardships that a single parent faces, Sharon ensured that the girls wanted for nothing whatsoever, and was assisted by the love and support of her family. Christy and Zara immediately developed a special bond and became the closest of friends and constant companions. When she was old enough, each day would come and collect her from the house Sharon lived in in nearby Roscon, then take her to their home as she attended Wine Gap National School and would get ready for at their house, Nancy lovingly doing her hair each morning. The little girl, who became a character as soon as she could, would soon regularly joke that Grandad was her taxi driver and Nanny her hairdresser, and Nancy Willan was later to remark that she often still stops and says out loud, to no one in particular but herself, 
how much she loved and misses the texture of feeling her granddaughter's hair. John Willan continued, They were an integral part of each other's lives. Zara loved to help everybody. She used to go out with her granddad. He used to look after the hurling pitch, put out flags and mark the pitch when there were games on. She was by his side, holding the flags for him and helping him. Nadia was such a lovely kid too. She was full of life and mischief. She always had a hug for you. You'd come in the door and she would throw her arms around you. By 2006, Sharon and the girls had moved to the isolated farmhouse in Raskin, renting it as a temporary measure while she waited to be placed on the council's housing list. But most importantly, it was to be nearer her family, who, as I've said, helped her out with the girls. By the autumn of 2008, both Zara and Nadia had been diagnosed with autism, which the family was dealing with as that Christmas approached. Sharon's favourite time of the year. John recalls, Christmas was such a time of joy, and I know how much it meant to Sharon. It was the big time of the year for her. It would be the one time in the year where we would get together on St. Stephen's Day and spend all day together, and that meant a lot to her. I spoke to Sharon on my birthday, the 23rd of December, and she just wanted to check, did my oldest chap Ben have this particular game for PlayStation that she was thinking of getting him. She was just checking to see was she getting the right gift for her nephew. And that would have been her. Things had to be right when it came to the kids. It was important. That was the last time I spoke to her. That Christmas Eve, Sharon prepared for Santa Claus to visit the household with assiduous care. She'd already rung her parents three or four times that day, explaining how she was planning to go to Mass early the following morning with them, and then to have dinner at the family home, and had arranged with Nancy that she would watch the girls so Sharon could go out with Linda for a few Christmas drinks over the holidays, having paid everything off for Christmas and still having a sum left over. She also that evening made several hushed phone calls to Christy, telling him to hold off on delivering the gifts that she'd stashed at her parents' house since seven-year-old Zara and two-year-old Nadia had gone to bed expecting Santa to leave a sack full of goodies during the night, and like all kids, were still too giddy to even think of going to sleep. At around 10.45pm, the children were finally asleep, and the coast clear for their grandfather to bring the gifts around. She was careful not to wake the girls, and so made him stop his car at the gate, and turn off the lights and the engine so that the children wouldn't hear him. Sharon then went to the gate to collect the gifts, including a tricycle for Nadia, and placed them lovingly in sacks beneath the Christmas tree. Christy then wished his daughter good night and went home, looking forward to the following day, playing with his beloved granddaughters. Recalling a conversation he had with his wife early the following morning, Christy said, years later, I got up and phoned her twice to see how they were, and I got no answer. I said to Nancy, she might be having a shower, and the kids are probably playing with their toys. The next thing, I saw a taxi man pull up outside, and when I opened the door, I had one shoe on and one shoe off. He said, Christy, Sharon's house is on fire. It was about first light that Christmas morning, just after 8.30am, that two local men out tending to cattle saw the flames shooting out from the rented farmhouse where Sharon and the two girls lived, and immediately ran to raise the alarm. Another neighbour, Jim Slattery, drove to the scene, calling the fire service on the way. Now by the time the fire brigade were already on the way, three local men had smashed the windows of the property and forced their way into the blazing house, ahead of their arrival, fighting through the smoke as there was no sign of the three occupants of the house outside. In a later statement, one of these men, Michael Landy, who had actually gone to school with Sharon, described how in a downstairs bedroom, he'd made the tragic discovery of Sharon and her daughters. Sharon's body, naked from the waist down, was face down on the floor, 
while Zara lay in her bed and Nadia in a cot in the corner of the room. And between the three men, fighting through the choking smoke, removed each of them through the only room undamaged by the fire, a back room window, and laid them tenderly outside on the grass. Though desperate efforts were made to resuscitate Zara and Nadia, it sadly being already too late for Sharon, who was cold to the touch and already showing signs of rigor mortis setting in, by their would-be rescuers and paramedics who arrived at the scene moments later, it was in vain, and all three were pronounced dead only a few minutes after that. How must something like that be? It cannot be anything less than horror beyond belief. Christie recalled later. I could see the slates cracking as I walked down the road and the fire. I went into the yard and one side of the house just fell. A man said to me, if there's anyone up there, they'll not make it out alive. I kept shouting and roaring. I thought, I'm going to wake up and this will all be a dream. Though he tried to make his way around to the back of the house, he was prevented from doing so by neighbours who warned him it was too dangerous to, telling him there was an unexploded air tank behind there. Christie came to realise later, however, that this was merely an act to prevent him seeing the bodies of his loved ones. He then had the awful task of informing his wife and family what had happened. John Willan recalled, it was Christmas morning and our boys, who were ten and three at the time, were obviously excited. They were up early and down they went and we opened up all the presents and all that and we had the cups of tea and the hot chocolate. I nipped upstairs just to have a shower and as I was getting dressed I could hear Sandra downstairs. There was a commotion kind of going on and she called me to come down. Mam was on the phone and she was pretty upset and hysterical. All I could make out was Mam saying Sharon's house is on fire. There's been a fire. She said they don't know where they are and they can't find them. Mam just kept screaming, they're gone, they're gone. It took a while to make sense of what she was saying. John's first instinct was to shield his own children from any distress. So he took the phone outside. His next instinct was one of hope, thinking that perhaps Sharon and the kids were in one of the outhouses around the old farm building or perhaps they were even at their aunt's house further up the road. You must choose to think anything rather than the worst in such a situation, mustn't you? John continued. But then, word got back to us that they'd been found inside. Next thing, Dad was after being brought back from the house, and unfortunately, he'd seen them being taken out of the house. Three local men had risked their lives to go into the house while it was on fire and they brought the three bodies out. Only for them, we would have no case. Struggling to take in what he'd been told, John initially assumed it had been an electrical fault that had caused the fire, perhaps from the Christmas tree lights being left on, or perhaps a candle had been left alight, the causes of several tragic accidents like that. But Dad kept saying, no, Sharon was always very careful about things like that, he recalled. Speaking years later about the impact of the horrendous loss, Nancy told how she couldn't comprehend what had happened when she first heard the devastating news. She said, I was in a daze. I wanted to die. I wanted to go with them. They were my children. I wanted to go with them that day. Oh God, when I knew what happened, there was a doctor there who was kneeling on the floor and begging me to take this injection. I really and truly was furious because I thought they were trying to hide something from me. I just lost it and said, no, I want to know what happened to my children. I was screaming. I'm not going to miss any of this, I said. Once the bodies had been taken to Waterford University Hospital for post-mortem and the fire had been brought under control, though it had completely gutted the building, causing part of it to collapse. Once it was safe to do so, forensic investigators were able to establish that there'd been at least two seats of fire that had started the blaze, possibly as many as four, 
but with the main seat coming from a pile of clothing that had been left on top of the washing machine in the kitchen. But Spidey's senses began to tingle somewhat when another seat was discovered as having been set in the living room adjacent to the downstairs bedroom. Now, fire spreads, but it doesn't often jump like that, does it? Those senses tingled somewhat further during the post-mortems the following day. For as I said, when Sharon was discovered, she was cold to the touch, rigor mortis having begun to set in. But the two girls weren't. Further, traces of soot had been found in the airways of both Zara and Nadia, but none had been found in the airway of Sharon, which suggested she'd been dead before the fire had been started and moved into the bedroom where she was found. Due to the level of rigor mortis, long before the fire was started. As a result, the post-mortems were abandoned and state pathologist Professor Marie Cassidy was called in to take over. She'd already been informed of the deaths, but that local guard were not at the time treating the deaths as suspicious, working on the premise that it was nothing more than a tragic fatal accident. She recalled in her memoir, Beyond the Tape, of her own examination of Sharon Wellan. Sure enough, the trachea was free from sticky black soot, but within a few minutes of starting my examination, I found an injury to her throat, her Adam's apple was damaged. There was bruising of the muscles of the neck which couldn't be explained by the aborted examination, and, most worryingly of all, her thyroid cartilage and hyoid bone were fractured. Sharon's knees were also bruised and scraped, and her left cheek was bruised as though something had hit her hard in the face. There was tearing and bruising to her genital area, and clinching it, the presence of semen in her vagina, which suggested violent sex. Professor Cassidy continued, There was no doubt in my mind that she'd been strangled she had been murdered. The enormity of the situation dawned on everyone. If Miss Willan had been murdered, the fire could have been started deliberately to conceal her death. By that time, it was too late. It doesn't take long for fire fumes to snuff out a little life, and therefore, as her children had died from the smoke fumes, all three deaths were murders. No one could have done anything to prevent the children dying other than the man who eventually admitted starting the fire after he had strangled their mother. So, police now had a murder inquiry on their hands. Had those three local men not shown the incredible bravery that they did in trying to rescue the family, albeit in vain, and removing their bodies, the bodies may have perished without trace, and this evidence would have been lost. As locals left flowers and cuddly toys at the scene of the devastation, residents of the tiny community were left reeling over the tragedy, and several left testimony to Miss Willan, describing her as a free-spirited and independent woman who was devoted to her children. Local Fianna Fáil councillor Matt Doran said it would be very difficult for locals to come to terms with the possibility that the mother and her two daughters may have died as a result of sinister acts and that people were distraught at not being able to grieve properly, as the bodies of the family had still not been released from the morgue at Waterford. Everything is on hold at the moment. This has affected everybody in the village. We're expecting a very large crowd at the funeral, he added. Sure enough, alongside the devastated Willan family members, and the fathers of each of the two girls, one who lived nearby, and one who lived near Callan, and was in a new relationship with a family, there was a crowd of some 300 mourners crammed into St. Nicholas's Church in Winegap on New Year's Day 2009 to say goodbye to the three Willan girls. We're at the funeral mass. The parish priest, Father Martin Clear, said there were no words to describe the tragedy. And indeed, how would you even begin to? How would you even begin? to describe something so horrific. 
Following a move in service, the three were interred together at the cemetery in Wine Gap, just across the road from the church, the burial ground being only a short distance from Christie and Nancy's home. Even still today, most days for them begin and end with a visit to there. They're just no words, eh? No words. What else there are no words for is that one of the attendees of Sharon, Zara and Nadia's funeral, one of those 300 mourners, was the individual responsible for snuffing out the three lives. Their killer had attended their funeral. Oh yes. John Willan said later, After the funeral, for us to find out later on he was there, he was in that crowd, it's quite horrific. This just put another layer of unbelievable pain on what we were dealing with already, that someone had deliberately done this. A few weeks after the deaths, a full-scale murder hunt had been launched from an incident room at Kilkenny Garda Station, and the full Tommy Lee Jones investigation process bit was underway. Because of no signs of forced entry to the property, or any signs of a disturbance at the scene before the fire, it was thought that Sharon's killer was known to her, so detectives made extensive house-to-house inquiries in the Wine Gap area, travelling outwards, to ascertain the location of every person known to Sharon Willan on that Christmas Eve. Every customer who was in Greenan's pub in Wine Gap on Christmas Eve was spoken to and eliminated from the investigation, Detectives assembled a list of every man who had visited Sharon's home, from relatives to delivery men, her father and a large extended family, and every aspect of Sharon's life was looked into. But all detectives could find was that other than the relationship she'd had with the fathers of her two children, there were no men in her life. She lived quietly and didn't often socialise, spending her modest income on her children rather than herself. Before long, it was reported in the local press that detectives were examining mobile phone records of six suspects, all of whom lived within a 10-mile radius of the remote farmhouse that was burned on that Christmas day. They were all known to Sharon, and one had only been seen once by neighbours since the tragedy that had claimed the three young lives. Another suspect had attended the funeral, and a plainclothes guarder was seen observing him among the congregation. Now, each of these six suspects were quizzed thoroughly by detectives, some on more than one occasion, and after voluntarily providing fingerprint and DNA evidence, one by one were ruled out of the inquiry. Because, of course, detectives had managed to retrieve a DNA sample from the semen found in Sharon's body. Ergo, they had the DNA of Sharon, Zara and Nadia's likely killer. At the very least, certainly someone who could be placed at the scene that night and would have to account for as to why he hadn't voluntarily come forward. In all, more than 80 local men from the community and the surrounding area were swabbed for DNA and fingerprints, these being sent in batches of 10 to the Forensic Science Services in Dublin. With the second batch being sent, Kilkenny Garda Station received a telephone call on the 14th of January from the Forensic Science Services to say that they had found a match. With nothing untoward in his past, Garda had regarded 23-year-old Wine Gap postman Brian Hennessy as someone to be eliminated from their inquiries rather than a potential suspect. Indeed, He'd only come into the frame because he had, in the past, delivered post to Sharon's house. Fair-haired Hennessy had been raised in the tiny community, which consists of little more than a post office, a school and a pub next door to the parish hall. He was well known in the community, he'd attended the school there and had turned out for hurling training from a young age. Even in adulthood he hadn't strayed far from home. He still lived with his parents, just a hundred metres or so up from Christian and Willan. He had a girlfriend of three years, and had recently gotten himself a steady job as a postman. Four years before, he'd even dated Sharon's younger sister Linda for a brief two-month period, 
and had been one of the 300-plus mourners at the Willans' funeral that New Year's Day. Local people said he seemed a quiet, gentle fellow who'd never been in trouble, and if anything was noted about him, it was that he liked to have a few drinks. But when Gardis started taking DNA samples from men in the area, the game was up for Hennessy. He had voluntarily submitted to the test, how could he not, without drawing attention to himself? And his DNA was later found to be an exact match for the DNA from the semen found inside Sharon's body. Ahead of arresting Hennessy, the Will and family were informed by their family liaison officer that an arrest was to be made, just ahead of a neighbour of theirs who lived further up from them, calling them to describe the police activity outside the Hennessy family home, and who had watched as the entire family came outside, with Brian Hennessy coming out last, and then being arrested. When Garda arrested him on January the 15th, three weeks after the murders, Hennessy maintained his innocence in the crimes. He told detectives, I didn't do it. I did sleep with her, but I didn't kill her. Initially, Hennessy tried to stick to the self-serving invention that he was Sharon's lover. He told Garda that he'd bumped into her one day some weeks before, and she told him, in the style say with a wink, he should call up to the house sometime. So he decided that 2am that Christmas Eve was to be the time, and surprised her. They had talked for a while, before going to the bedroom she shared with her daughters, where they had quiet, gentle, consensual sex, as he described. He had then left later that Christmas morning, leaving the three sleeping. Now as I'm sure you can imagine, Gardy didn't believe him. They were convinced Sharon would never have let him into the house. It was not in her character to invite random blokes back for sex. And nor was there a scrap of evidence, telephone records or otherwise, to suggest that they knew each other beyond mere bare acquaintances. Now Gardy had his movements from that day nailed down. In contrast to the time where Sharon was excitedly receiving the presents for the girls from her father, Brian Hennessy was by then still in the throes of what was to be a 10-hour drinking session. He'd done four straight night shifts in a row at Kilkenny's sorting office, and after he'd arrived home from work after his shift finished at 8am that Christmas Eve, he'd rested for a while. At 10 o'clock, his mother sent him out to get the turkey for the next day's festive dinner, and then, after another brief rest, he went to see his girlfriend. His birthday had been the day before, and he was due to meet some work colleagues for celebratory drinks at Kiteless Inn in Kilkenny Town that day. So they met at 3.30 that afternoon, and stayed there until 8, when they were joined by his father and his brother. Hennessy and his family then went back to Geenan's pub, a pub near the family home in Wine Gap, and the evening ended there. When Geenan shut its doors at around 1.30 that Christmas morning, Hennessy and his sister were among the last to leave there, and headed back to his parents' house. However, he soon left there again, saying that he'd left his jacket in the pub. Now Hennessy had now been drinking for 10 hours, and was definitely the worse for wear. Revellers making their way home saw him weaving his way down the middle of the road in the direction of the pub, but he had never got there. A statement from his mother later claimed that he had arrived back at home between 6 and 7am that Christmas morning. He had had no keys with him and was forced to knock the door, getting her up to let him in and explaining that he'd spent the night at a friend's house. He had then gone straight to bed sleeping through the shock and horror that was to sweep through the tiny community less than two hours later. Afterwards, as much as everybody could, he had celebrated Christmas with his own family like nothing had happened. Gardy believed strongly that Hennessy, full of drink, volatile, sexually aroused and violent, had walked not back to the pub that night, but instead up to Sharon Willan's house with the intention of having sex with her, knowing she was a young woman living alone in an isolated property. 
When Gardy put to him that he'd raped Sharon, which the defensive wounds to her body suggested, and then killed her and her children after she threatened to report him, he denied rape. But at a later interview, his fifth, Hennessy said he was about to leave when Sharon threatened to tell people about their liaison, specifically his girlfriend. That's how he worded it, their liaison. He added, I just strangled her with my two hands around her neck, killed her in the living room. I sat on the bed, I didn't know what to do. I saw the kids, it made me more sad that I'd taken their mother away on Christmas. He said he then took Sharon back into the bedroom and left her there. Then, using a cigarette lighter he'd found in his pocket, he set fire to a pile of clothes left sitting on the kitchen table, adding that he thought he'd set another fire in the living room but couldn't remember clearly, which tied up with what forensic fire investigators had managed to determine. When asked about setting fire to the house, Hennessy replied, I don't know why I did it. I never thought about the children. I was worried about the murder. Horror beyond belief, isn't it? He had waited in the house for several hours with two sleeping children there, their mother already raped and strangled, and though he could have left at any time, he deliberately started a fire and left the two girls to die in it. Thankfully, if any thanks can come from such horror. There were no burn marks to either of the girls. They'd asphyxiated. They'd merely gone to sleep and had never woken up. Imagine the absolute terror and agony if either of those girls, if either one of those two girls had woken. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? According to Detective Sergeant Jim Ling, who had arrested him and was one of the interviewing officers, Hennessy reportedly did express some remorse in interview, but how genuine it was is another question, as was whether it was for the lives he'd taken or for himself. I'll let you draw your own conclusions there. On Saturday the 17th of January 2009, at a special sitting of Kilkenny District Court, Brian Hennessy appeared charged with the murder of Sharon Willan in County Kilkenny on Christmas Day of the previous year, as well as two counts of criminal damage. The two added charges of murdering Zara and Nadia, as well as a charge of rape, were added at a later date. He was granted legal aid and was remanded in custody to Clover Hill Prison to appear in court again the following Tuesday, where he was then remanded further to await trial. But even though Hennessy had admitted his culpability to Garda during questioning, he inflicted further pain on the Willan family by refusing to admit his guilt at his pre-trial plea hearing and instead entered a plea of not guilty ahead of his trial, scheduled for November of that year at the Central Criminal Court in Dublin. Following Hennessy's arrest, Christy and Nancy could not believe that the beast responsible for the loss of their family members was someone living in their small village from a family that they knew and had known for years. Nancy recalled feeling at the time. I kept saying, no, it can't be. It can't be someone so close. I just said, does anybody know anybody after that? How many times have we heard similar on the show? You really don't, dear. Heartbroken Christie added, How could a man watch two small children sleep and do all that? On the 17th of November 2009, a jury of one woman and 11 men was sworn in at the Central Criminal Court in Dublin ahead of Hennessy's trial, which was due to start that day, and to which he'd pleaded not guilty to the counts he faced. However, the trial was immediately adjourned until the following day pending legal discussion, and on the following day, Hennessy pleaded guilty to three counts of murdering Sharon Willan and her daughters Zara and Nadia. He pleaded not guilty to a further charge of rape, which was among the charges that the state did not proceed with after he was indicted for the murders. 
Hennessy said he knew what he'd done to the Willan family was unbearable, telling the court, I will never be able to cope with this, so God help them. I'm so, so sorry, I don't know what else to say. Sharon's family were all in court to see a killer sentenced and wept as the prosecution ahead of this went through the harrowing evidence of Sharon's final moments. They sat silently as they heard the statement by Hennessy in which he tried to destroy the memory and good character of doting mum Sharon by claiming to Garda they'd had consensual gentle sex with Sharon in the same room as her two children. But the report by state pathologist Marie Cassidy destroyed these claims completely as it showed that Sharon had bruising which would be consistent with violent sex and the pathologist added that she may have been strangled during a sexual act. Detective Sergeant Jim Ling, giving evidence, agreed when cross-examined by Paul Coffey SC, defending that Hennessy was from a respectable family and had never been in trouble. However, he also told Tom O'Connell, prosecuting, that he agreed that the prosecution's case was that rape was the trigger for the killing, that he killed her, then sat there, pondered what he'd do next, and set the fires. But the most powerful evidence heard before the court during the emotional hearing were victim impact statements given by the victim's relatives. Nadia's father, Joseph Delahanty, spoke of the loss of his daughter, causing both families to sob openly as his statement was read out to the packed courtroom. Dressed in a greyish-brown suit, his wavy blonde hair collar-length, Hennessy wept in the dock and stared at the ground with his head in his hands throughout this, and as Sharon's brother John took to the witness box to read a victim impact statement on behalf of his family. Addressing Hennessy directly, John said, It is obvious that human life meant nothing to you. An innocent mother and her two young daughters, their lives meant nothing to you. She was a wonderful mother. Like any single mother, she had her tough times, but those children wanted for nothing. Those three girls were the centre of everything for my parents, and you, Brian Hennessy, took that away. Christmas for us is no more a time of celebration. It is a time of loss and grief. The pain is overwhelming. The murder of our girls has left a hole in our hearts. It's beyond belief that anyone with a conscience could contemplate, never mind carry out, such evil. John explained that his parents had become shadows of their former selves, simply existing rather than living life in the wake of such bitter loss, and how every morning and every night they made the two-minute walk to the girls' graves to chat to them. He continued, It's all they have left. They hear children playing in the local school every day, knowing Zara should be there. The pain is overwhelming, he said. All you will lose is your liberty, a loss that does not come close to the loss that you, Brian Hennessy, have imposed on this family. John added, We would also like to make it clear that we bear no animosity to the Hennessy family. They cannot be held responsible for the actions of one man. He, and he alone, must take responsibility for his actions. Handing down his sentence, presiding judge Barry White told Hennessy he had not been man enough to save the Willan family the pain of court, and had added to the suffering of Sharon's family by waiting until the 11th hour to change his plea to guilty. The judge also said there could be no more poignant time of year for a person to lose their life other than at Christmas, and that Hennessy had deprived two young girls of the excitement of finding what Santa had left them as presents, and their mother of witnessing that joy. He spoke of the devastation felt by Sharon's family, and said that Hennessy had deliberately set fire to the house, in the knowledge that two young girls were asleep inside, and told Hennessy that his actions had meant that Christmas forever, for all those connected to Sharon and her two daughters, would be a time of anguish, pain and grieving. Imposing the mandatory three life sentences for murder, in a landmark ruling, 
Judge White said that two of these sentences should run consecutively, but one concurrently, meaning Hennessy should spend at least 30 years behind bars. Now taken literally, this would have seen him serving three life sentences, one after the other, which could have meant anything from 36 years to the rest of his natural life behind bars, depending on his behaviour in prison. He was then taken to Arbor Hill Prison to begin his sentence. By the time Hennessy was sentenced to three life terms in jail at the Central Criminal Court, Sharon's parents had already made their peace with the family of their daughter and granddaughter's murderer, said John Willan. Our family and the Hennessy family have made their peace with each other. When it all came out about what had happened, what he'd done, we sat down as a family and talked about this. We all to a person came to the conclusion that we can't hold any grudge against the Hennessy family. How were they to know what he was going to do? Of course, it goes without saying that this compassion did not extend to Brian Hennessy, as John continued. The way we're looking at it is, he went down that road that night for one thing and one thing only. He went down that road, uninvited and unannounced, and there is no way Sharon would have voluntarily let him in. Our families wish that he will serve every day of his sentence. We're going to serve every day of ours. On Thursday, April the 22nd, 2010, a jury at Kilkenny Coroner's Court returned verdicts of death by murder in the case of Sharon and her daughters. With then-state pathologist Marie Casti telling the inquest of injuries on Sharon's body consistent with forced penetration. The injuries around Sharon's neck were consistent with manual strangulation and this was the cause of her death. There was no evidence of a raised level of carbon monoxide in her blood which meant the woman was already dead when the fire started. The bodies of both Zara and Nadia had a lining of soot and smoke along the airways with no evidence of assault and no heat damage apart from superficial damage to Zara's shin according to the pathologist. Death was due to the inhalation of smoke and fire gases. Delivering his verdict, Coroner Timothy Keeley then offered his heartfelt condolences to the Willan family and the Wine Gap community as a whole, saying they'd endured a shocking experience which would take some time to get over. Now, Hennessy was originally sentenced to two consecutive life sentences and one concurrent life sentence for the murders, as I said. However, later that same year, this was successfully appealed by him at the Court of Criminal Appeal. His sentence reviewed and ruled in an uncontested application as being unduly severe, and he is now serving the three terms concurrently, meaning he's not serving any additional time behind bars. It also meant that at the time, due to Ireland's sentencing laws, he could then apply for parole after having just served seven years imprisonment. And if this was unsuccessful, a prisoner was then due another review every two years. In the wake of Hennessy's appeal, John was instrumental in setting up a group called the Sentencing and Victim Equality Group, known as SAVE. The group campaigns for a minimum tariff on life sentences in Ireland before a murderer can be paroled and for convicted murderers to be automatically placed on the sex offenders list if there is a sexual element to the crime. He explained, I made a promise to Sharon and the children the day his sentences were adjusted in the Court of Appeal to allow him to serve all three life sentences at once. As soon as I heard this was the judgment, I just thought to myself, that's not right, it's not fair, and it's not just. Anyone convicted of Kilnagarda in Ireland receives a 40-year sentence. And why can't it be the same for others? My sister and her children's lives are just as important, and I can't understand why tariffs of 30 years plus aren't introduced where extreme forms of violence are used. I would argue someone like Brian Hennessy, who was able to take three lives come home and fall asleep on the couch, have Christmas dinner with his family, and then go and have Christmas dinner with his girlfriend's family and act like nothing happened? If my family were murdered in England, 
Brian Hennessy would be under a whole life tariff right now. Then we would be in a position to try and move on with our lives. So the state is compliant in re-traumatising families because we're dragged back to the very start again. Indeed, John is very vocal about feeling let down by the justice system and his battle to have the state recognise the three lives that were taken. And he admits there are times when he's felt it hopeless that he's even wanted to stop campaigning. But then he remembers his sister and the cruel injustice that was visited upon her, saying, It has an effect on people, your job, your mental health, relationships suffer, family gatherings are hard. One third of your family isn't there. It's as if there's less colour in life. It's the family, not the perpetrator, who has the life sentence. It kind of comes around every couple of years and it's something that the family and other families have had to go through. We're campaigning to have that changed. There are times when I say to myself, enough, things are not going to change. Basically, you're banging your head against a brick wall. But then I remember the last phone conversation I had with Sharon and it always brings me back to stay going because I know someone will listen eventually. Someone will take families seriously eventually. John has campaigned for changes to sentencing laws for several years now and has featured prominently in the press over the years, more often than not ahead of one of Hennessy's parole hearings. John told the Irish Sunday Mirror in 2018, A life sentence should mean a life sentence. Families can't live on if they feel they haven't got justice. We need to change the system. The judiciary needs to cop on and refuse bail to anybody with a history of violence. That would save lives. Even if it changed in the morning, it wouldn't make a difference to our family. But there are others after us who it would help, up to 70 families a year. When you look at the level of violence, especially against women, it seems to be out of control and something needs to be done. We need to look at domestic homicide and how people were let down. It may be 10 years since it happened, but it only feels like yesterday for us. We talk about it all the time in our family to our kids. They need to know how important they were to us. Zara would be 17 now and Nadia would be 12 going on 13, the same as my middle son Dara. When I see him, I think a lot of how Nadia would be now. He did a prayer of the faithful at the mass. You're always thinking what would have been. You're thinking communions, birthdays, confirmations, and the most poignant of all, of course, is Christmas time, when they were taken from us. It takes some of the colour of life away. It's dimmed a bit, but you'll never get that back. By this time, John was also working with ADVIC, a support service for families bereaved by murder, manslaughter and fatal assault, which also provides information and help for people. Advic was also campaigning for a mandatory minimum tariff of 15 years in the case of murder, with an upwards increment including the option of a whole life tariff without parole, the same as is in place in the UK. He added, Life is the most precious thing we have, and those who choose to take it away deserve stronger sanctions. If someone makes a conscious decision to end that, we must look at ourselves seriously as a country and as a modern society and say, is it good enough for victims and their families that this is how we dealt with that? I don't think it is. In the case of Sharon and the girls, a change in sentencing won't make any difference as the law cannot be applied retrospectively. But for the next family, it could, and changes in sentencing would make our society a safer place. The Willan family welcomed the announcement in December 2020 of the implementation of the Parole Act 2019, where, on the 12th anniversary of the murders, Justice Minister Helen McEntee said, The Act increases the length of the sentence which must be served by life-sentenced prisoners before they are even eligible to be considered for parole, from 7 to 12 years. However, this meant that Hennessy could now apply again. John said, The horrifying part is that this means we have to write another letter pleading our case all over again. And that's completely wrong. 
We could refuse to do it, but if we did and he got out, we'd never forgive ourselves. Hennessy is continuing in his quest for freedom, now having served almost 15 years of his life sentence. In May of this year, ahead of the killer's second interview with the parole board since 2019, John and his wife Sandra travelled to Dublin to outline his opposition to the bid. Hennessy was to have his own hearing before the board the following week, where he had chance to hear John's arguments and to plead his case for release back into the community. In an exclusive interview with the Irish Sunday Mirror newspaper, John spoke of his own appearance before the board, in which he laid out in detail why he and Sharon's heartbroken family don't want Hennessy to see the light of day any time soon. He said, The first thing I said to them was, all things being equal, and if there was a fair justice system, I shouldn't be sitting here in front of you right now. I shouldn't be here. And it's nothing personal, I said. I have a duty to be here. This is what the state is asking me to do. So I have to be here, I said, to represent Sharon and the girls. But I shouldn't have to be here and shouldn't have to plead for Hennessy to be kept behind bars. We are Sharon's voice now and we'll fight for her and her children. Once again, all these horrible feelings are coming back as we fight to keep this killer in prison. We have huge concerns for our family, but also for the community if he's released. We know he has a relative who lives close to one of our relatives. And what happens if we went to that house? That would just be more trauma for our family to endure. The opportunity to meet with the parole board was never there before and we will be meeting with people who have the power to impact your life in a positive or negative way. We made a written submission in 2019 and our position remains the same. We are pleading with a group of individuals who don't know us never knew Sharon or don't know about the impact these murders have had on our family to keep this prisoner in jail. The decision that they make will affect us for the rest of our lives and we hope that the man who took the lives of three innocent people in the most callous way imaginable remains behind bars. He is now serving one life sentence for the three murders and my question to the powers that be is who is he serving the sentence for? No one has ever told me or my parents which one. Is it Sharon or is it Nadia or Zara? Why can't the state tell us this? It nullifies the value of the other two lives. This man has wiped out one third of our family in one night and now he can go for parole in February or March of next year. John added, The justice minister used to have the final say when it comes to parole but this is no longer the case. We're also wondering if we will be told the reasons why they have made certain decisions. We know we will get out someday, but that day shouldn't be after 15 years. Our dealings with the parole board have been very good in recent times, and the only thing we can do now is to outline in person the ongoing trauma these horrific murders have had on our family since 2008. People need to remember that even after what he did to Sharon, he waited there for up to four to five hours before he decided to light the fire and those kids were asleep for that time. He decided to light that fire knowing that they were there. He just left and they never woke up on Christmas morning. Our Sharon was lying there and her thoughts must have been with her children and what was going to happen to them. He could have just walked away but he decided to take two more lives when there was absolutely no need for him to do this. It's absolutely the behaviour of a psychopath. How can someone capable of such evil change after 14 years? As this episode drops, the 15th anniversary of the murders has arrived, and John was given the news of the shocking development earlier this month that Hennessy has again appeared before the parole board just before the anniversary, John said. I was told he is coming before the board before Christmas and there'll be a decision made then in or around March. The timing of this is not lost on us and I know my parents are quite worried about it. I'd be very fearful of someone like Hennessy coming back into society because of what he's capable of. Of course, Christmas time is difficult every year for the Willan family 
This one, of course, no exception. And John's parents, in particular, struggle with the anniversary. In fact, Nancy admitted the family dreads Christmas and can no longer celebrate it. An example of how they feel is in something Nancy said some years ago when recalling past Christmases with Sharon, Zara and Nadia, saying, I look at their toys and them waiting for Santa. Then I think, to sit there for so many hours contemplating what he was going to do. We're looking for justice for my daughter and two grandchildren. I'll never have a Christmas again. John said earlier this month, Christmas Eve is tough. When the kids are in bed and you're getting ready for the morning, that's the toughest part. Thinking that they were doing the exact same thing, knowing they were going to bed with all the excitement of the next day, and it never came. For me, it's very symbolic and poignant to be putting those presents under that tree. You do appreciate life more. You appreciate your kids and your relationships more because you never know when they're going to stop. Poor, poor family. How does your heart not go out to them? The first series of the podcast Inside the Crime covers this horrific tale in further depth than I have. It brings interviews with the Wallan family members, detectives involved in the investigation, as well as leading figures from the judiciary that I thoroughly recommend a listen to. It was invaluable in researching this episode. And to listen to it, it brings home probably much more than I have here, and I've really tried my best to, but hearing the family members open up and share their feelings, you can really see just what a loss this was, this still is, for each of them, and how painful it still is today for them facing life without Sharon, Zara and Nadia. I mean, heartbreak doesn't cover it. These people are each still devastated by the actions of Hennessy that Christmas morning 15 years ago. It seems wrong also, and this is something echoed in several tales I've covered from Ireland over the various series, that Hennessy has so many opportunities at parole, and I can understand exactly the Willan family sentiments that such a heinous, callous killer should spend the remainder of his life behind bars. How any court saying three life sentences is too harsh a sentence for raping and strangling a young mother and leaving two sleeping children to die, deliberately, in a burning building, a fire set to cover his own tracks that he'd waited hours to set, is beyond me. I find it an absolute disgrace, and am fully in support of the work that John Willan and Save and Advic are doing. To be honest, I would find it bloody mind-bending if anyone was not in support of them, quite frankly. And details of these organisations will be contained within the episode show notes should anyone want any more information or perhaps even to offer help to them. I think a minimum of 12 years incarceration before being considered for parole as implemented in 2020 is a step in the right direction, granted, but I stress, a mere step. Much more needs to be done. For whilst Hennessy inches closer each time to a release, Each time his parole hearings come around, the scars for that family he destroyed are opened up once again. That's the true life sentence being served here, and that's not right. And for crimes so horrific and senseless, I don't believe a monster like that should ever walk the streets again, and certainly never look forward to a Christmas Eve again being out, where, who knows, could he do the same thing once again? and perhaps leave another family lighting candles each Christmas, in place of their loved ones being there. What do you think? I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale Horror on a Christmas Morning, which you can do so in the episode thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or, if you wish to, through any of the show's social media links. I'll always happily chat wherever, and I'm not hard to get in touch with at all. With that, I shall wrap up here then, and it's on to the next tale now, which will be coming to you early in the new year, although if you're a Patreon supporter, join me for some more horrors over the holidays before the year is out.
All that remains for me to say here is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, thanks very much for joining me in the MOG, and goodbye for now.